0: please open your Bibles with me to the sixth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 6. The Lord Jesus Christ answered the devil himself when he was under temptation in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We have every word of God before us between the covers of Your King James Bibles and we want to learn them and have the Lord speak to us by them. As we come to Romans chapter six, we understand that the first five chapters of the epistle were describing what God has done for us in saving us from our condemnation as sinners by every measure. We have sinned against creation. We have sinned against providence. We have sinned against conscience. We have sinned against revelation. We've sinned against the law of God. And yet God has saved us by His grace. He did that which adorned His love most gloriously by saving us when we were His enemies. Amen. He has brought forth a second Adam for us, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem us that were under the law. Right. And the five chapters of Romans one through five describe that salvation. Then when we come to the sixth chapter, it begins to lay on us our duty to live for that God that saved us and the Savior who died for us. Right. And I want to read to you verses eleven through eighteen, and we will consider verses fourteen through eighteen. Romans six eleven. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey? whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Amen and amen. Thank you, Father, for these words by our beloved brother Paul. These are some of the hardest words in the epistle based on the confusion and varied opinions of commentators. Verse 14 would be the hardest verse in the chapter. The first clause of verse 14 would be the hardest clause. But let's see if in a few minutes, and without boring you, we can understand exactly what was intended by this 14th verse and then add to it, what's in verses 16 through 18 especially. Let's take that first verse, verse 14 and its first clause. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Dominion is the power or the right of governing and controlling or ruling. When we speak of the dominion of God, we speak of His sovereign power over His creation. And when we find the word here, dominion, We're talking about the ruling power or controlling power or influence of sin. In what sense can we say sin shall not have dominion over you? Or we should put it this way, in what sense did the Holy Spirit mean those words right here? For sin shall not have dominion over you. I think I can rely on your Christian experience to know that sin still has some control and rule in your life. It still fights and tries to reign. You can keep it from reigning according to that 12th verse that we looked at last Lord's Day. But what sense? in what sense should we understand these words? For sin shall not have dominion over you. If we make a mistake here, we can end up being fatalists very easily. If we make a mistake here, we can crush the hearts of God's children for they will measure themselves by a false standard that you have given them or I have given them by misinterpreting this clause. Let's think for a moment about sin and its dominion. In the eternal phase of salvation which took place before the world began, God chose to save us by electing and predestinating grace from the plan of sin. Sin did not enter this universe by God being negligent or without God knowing it or without God planning it. For His greater honor and glory. He made no creature of His sin. They chose to sin. He arranged the circumstances and they did sin. Election and predestination save us from the plan of sin. On the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ died and saved us from the penalty of sin, because there was a penalty that had to be paid, and it was the penalty of death for sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary, laid down His life, and it pleased the Father to bruise Him instead of us, and He saved us from the penalty of sin. During our lives, at some point in life, we will be born again with the power of the Holy Spirit. We will have implanted within us a new man created in righteousness and true holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. From that point on, a Christian has a conflict going on in him between his old man, the flesh, and his new man, the Spirit, the one of God, the one of sin and this world, opposing each other. But we've been given this power in the new man so that we can say, by regeneration, we have been saved from the power of sin. Because we now have a power in the new man in which we are able to put off the old and put on the new. When we hear the gospel, and when the gospel comes to us, when the Word of God comes to us and teaches us, and we believe it, we are saved from the practice of sin. I hope you're with me. And these different phases of salvation the Lord has shown us as we look at what does this verse mean about sin no longer having dominion over us. When we hear the gospel and we see what God expects of us and we believe it and we obey it and we're baptized and we commit ourselves to live by it, we're saved from the practice of sin. There's a day coming in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and redeem our bodies from the ground and we will be saved from the presence of sin. Thank you, Lord, for that day. Saved from the very presence of sin, there'll be none left with us. Right now, we've got the presence of sin. And in chapter 7, Paul's going to describe it quite plainly, that he knows that there is a law going on in his members, and that there is wickedness in his members that are fighting against the law of his mind. We are not free from the presence of sin yet. So we rule out anything that sounds like perfectionism. We're perfect in the sight of God, but a legal transaction of Christ. But we're never going to live up to be perfect. But we want to strive to be as perfect as we can. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God by the precious promises. Do you love the Word of God? Does 2 Corinthians 7 1 mean anything to you? Yeah. Is there a positive encouragement? Right. Having therefore these promises, is that a positive encouragement? Right. I promise I'll do seven things for you if you'll just obey me. The seven things are wonderful, and I've enumerated them enough times this morning. Then is there a different kind of motivation perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We want to tremble before Him, and with rejoicing, He's a great God that judgeth according to every man's works. There's five phases in which we are delivered from sin. Before the world began, we were delivered from the plan of sin. At Calvary, we were delivered from its penalty. When we're born again, we're delivered from its power. When we hear the gospel and believe it, we are delivered from its practice. And there's a day coming we'll be delivered from its presence. But what we still haven't answered yet What does verse 14 mean when it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you? Is this just a description of our positional relationship to Christ? With all our sins paid for? For sin shall have no more dominion over you. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Does that just mean that positionally in Jesus Christ, we're viewed by God as having no sin? Well, if that's all it is, there's no motive to good works or there's not much in the way that it's being used here, does it mean that because we're born again, we're not going to sin? No, because perfectionism isn't true. Does it mean that if a child of God is really saved, sin's not going to have a dominion over him, and he's just going to trample all over sin? And when that's preached, God's little sheep are discouraged because they know in their experience that they're fighting with sin all the time. Didn't David himself pray in Psalm 19, don't let my presumptuous sins have dominion over me? Is it an offer or promise of freedom from sin if we live in a certain way of obedience? No. No. No to all my questions. Is it a proof or a reference text supporting Calvinism's idea of perseverance of the saints? No. In what sense? Does sin have dominion under Moses' law that it no longer has under the gospel of grace? Our clause starts out with the word for, a coordinating conjunction connecting it to what's gone before. What did we have go before? I read to you verses 11 through 13 that tell you that you are to reckon some things to be true. You are to reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. It's a choice of a mindset that was in that 11th verse. It's a choice to think of yourself as being dead to sin because Christ died for sin and rose from the dead to live unto God and we, by our baptisms, declared the same thing. So we know that we're still connected up to baptism by the coordinating conjunction 4 that connects this 14th verse to the context that came before it. And in the 12th and 13th verses, we were told, Let not sin therefore reign. So, sin's trying to reign, but I don't have to let it reign. Therefore, it doesn't have to have dominion over me if I'll fight it. Instead of yielding your members of your body as instruments of sin, yield or give up your body to God as instruments of righteousness. It seems like such a long time since last Sunday morning in some respects, but I know that I spoke with a bunch of you during the week And we exchanged the words, let's let our bodies, this collection of members, be instruments of righteousness unto God. Because that's what we ought to be doing with our bodies. And so that's the context that comes before. When the whole context is considered, it's clearly seen that it is knowledge or a mindset or an attitude that is in, by an attitude I mean, a view of things that gives us the right perspective that sin will not have dominion over us it's a mindset it is not referring to what Jesus did in the cross except indirectly as being part of the gospel message it's not referring to us being regenerated sin can't dominate us anymore it is a choice to not let sin reign and instead to yield ourselves to God and we do it as the second half of verse 14 tells us, because we are under the gospel of grace, not under the law. Notice what the 14th verse says. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For. Aha! Thank you, Lord. You're telling us what sense we're to understand the first clause by adding two clauses. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Does that take away all our sinning? No, look at the 15th verse. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Do you know what that 15th verse tells us? It tells us that the taking away of the dominion of sin in verse 14 can't be absolute, or there wouldn't be verse 15 saying, are you going to respond to verse 14 by sinning? Well, you couldn't sin if its dominion was taken away in some absolute term. The dominion being taken away is the controlling, convicting, condemning nature and mindset of sin under the law of God of the Old Testament. Paul right here is taking two verses in the middle of chapter 6 to go after his number one enemy, Jewish legalism, and Jews in love with the law of God. He only takes two verses. He's going to take all of chapter 7. But here are two verses in which he is pointing out that the law of God, when you lived under it, gave sin strength. Does the Bible say that? That the law gives sin its strength. Do you know that Paul, before he understood the law of God, and I'm taking this from chapter 7, thought that he was without sin. But as soon as the law came to him with understanding, sin revived and I died. Because all the law can do for you is condemn you. It is a burden, it is a slave driver, it is a taskmaster, it is a school teacher, it is a governor, it is a tutor, it is a dominating force when you're under the law because you have so many commandments and you can't keep them, and there aren't hope there isn't hope, and there's no promises compared to the promises of the gospel. There's no second Adam, there's no Savior. There's no deliverer. You've got animal blood that only reminds you of sin, and you lo and behold just sinned while you were walking out from from having one animal killed because there's so many commandments to keep. You went one step too far on the Sabbath day. It is the condemnation of the law versus the glorious hope, liberty, promises, and certain final victory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when it says... For sin shall not have dominion over you. It is telling you that you have you have the ability and you have the motivation to not let sin reign in your members. Verse 11. You have the motivation and you have the ability to reckon yourselves indeed dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. I've mentioned verses 11 and 12 now. You have the ability and you have the motivation according to verse 13 to yield yourself as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. It's not going to have its controlling, condemning, strengthening power because you're not under the law anymore. You're under the gospel of grace. And the obvious conclusion quickly from verse 15 is what then? Shall we sin? Because we're under the liberty of the gospel? Because it's not so condemning as the law? Does that mean we ought to sin? God forbid! That's not the effect it ought to have. The effect it ought to have is for us to be the slaves of Almighty God and slaves of righteousness and no longer slaves of sin. Therefore, that clause for sin shall not have dominion over you is a very practical clause describing the superiority of the gospel to the law of Moses. The superiority of the New Testament to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was pitiful. Do you know the, the Apostle Paul calls it beggarly? He says that the promises of the new are better than the promises of the old. The mediator of the new is better than the mediator of the old. Everything about it is better. If you read 2 Corinthians 3 last night, did the Apostle get down to where he reasoned like this? Yes, the Old Covenant had a little bit of Glory. But the new covenant's got so much glory, we can just flat out say the old covenant didn't have any. That's right. 2 Corinthians 3. There's Paul comparing the two covenants. And do you know what, as he went through those two covenants and compared them, that the new covenant has much greater glory than the old covenant? And you know, the old covenant was pretty impressive. When you read the scene of Mount Sinai all together shaking and burning like a furnace, and Moses coming down and his face is glowing like he's been in the presence of God and he's got to put a veil over his face, and they didn't dare come near that mountain where they were to be killed, it's a pretty glorious sight. However, the glory of the gospel is far greater. And so much exceeds and excels the Old Testament in glory, we can say it doesn't have any in comparison. And therefore sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin, it doesn't have the controlling and convicting and condemning and strengthening force that it does under the law. When you have a covenant, when you have a covenant that is based on your performance, think about this. Our new covenant is based on His performance. The old covenant was based on your performance of around 700 commandments. No hope of keeping them. Only animal blood to temporarily give you ceremonial cleansing. You're condemned. It strengthens sin. The, The law of God strengthens sin to show men their exceeding sinfulness. And that's what gave sin its dominion under the law. We know that that's what he's talking about because that's the whole context of verse 14, including the second half of verse 14. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Whatever dominion is in the first clause of verse 14, it's because of the law of God of Moses. And we don't have that anymore. We have promises. We have performances. We have love instead of condemnation. The Apostle Paul would say, the love of Christ constraineth me. Right. Under the Old Testament, what love did you have constraining you? Because you got twice as much manna on the sixth day of the, on the, the sixth day of the week so you wouldn't have to gather any on the seventh, and if you went out and gathered in the seventh, you're gonna die? And if you gather too much in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or fifth, it's gonna spoil? On and on, the law of God goes. The law of God strengthened sin. It condemned men. It didn't have the promises. It didn't have the hope. It didn't have the liberty. It didn't have the Savior. It didn't have the satisfaction. It didn't have the certain final victory that the Gospel does. The Gospel preached from the New Testament. Now how do we know that Paul's talking about that? Because just two verses from now in verse 17, he says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. The issue in verse 14, and I do not want to take more time on verse 14, and what delivers us from the dominion of sin is the doctrine of the grace of Almighty God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. They received that doctrine, and that doctrine freed them from the confining, condemning, convicting, conscience-ruining economy of the Old Testament. That's why there are several passages like 2 Corinthians 3. I hope that you notice, for those of you that read 2 Corinthians 3, that the comparison between the Old and New Testaments was made extensively. And because of the superiority of the New Testament, Paul said, Therefore, we use all plainness of speech. We're not obscure like that old covenant that Moses had. We're able to declare plainly what God has done. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and there is sustaining power and there is strengthening power so that we are changed from glory to glory into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. There wasn't anything like that in the Old Testament. You just got changed from condemnation to more condemnation every time you sinned and knew that animal blood was not taking it away. So if the apostle could then, in another comparison of the two covenants, Hebrews 9 and 10, he would say this, those old sacrifices that they offered, they could never make your conscience free about sin. Because every year there was another remembrance of sin made in the Day of Atonement. This is the first four verses of chapter 10. But when we hear when we hear the doctrine that tells us that Jesus Christ offered Himself without spot to God, how much more shall that cleanse your conscience to serve the living God? That's chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is the hardest verse, and I'm sorry if if I'm not making it crystal clear to you, and if it's boring you, because we want to get to our servitude to God. But let me use one more passage. I've mentioned two. 2 Corinthians 3 that you were to read last night. Hebrews 9 and 10 is a comparison as well. But here in Galatians 3, look at this comparison. Verse 22, Galatians 3:22. But the Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures, the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise of faith by of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, that is the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gospel of Grace. There was faith in the Old Testament. Didn't Abraham have faith? I just do you understand the verse here? Before the object of faith came, before. The gospel came, but before faith came, we were kept under the law. That's from Romans six fourteen. Shut up. We were shut up, closed up, confined. There was no liberty. There was no hope. We were shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We don't have that schoolmaster beating us every day, telling us you need a Savior, and you don't have one. We're no longer under him, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Children of God! Now how's that for adoption? For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, baptized believers is a group we're talking about, just as in Romans chapter 6, which started out with baptism. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine if you were a Gentile and you heard the law of Moses without hearing the gospel of grace? How much hope would you have? Would sin have dominion over you? Knowing that you couldn't even go worship at the tabernacle or the temple because you weren't a Jew? And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Now I say that the heir... As long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Tutors and governors. A governor is someone that has dominion over those that are put in his charge. Romans 6.14 Even so we, when we were children, hadn't come to full maturity in God's dealings with us, were in bondage under the elements of the world. That is the Old Testament law. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God had sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That is the huge change of being under the law of Moses and now being under the Gospel. Instead of just being a servant of God, we're a son. Instead of having a tutor and a governor beating us every day and reminding us that we are convicted and condemned, we have the promise of eternal life given to us, we've already been adopted, we are the sons of God. And it's in that sense that sin no longer has any dominion because we're not under that system of religion or that economy that is constantly condemning us without hope and promises of certain victory. It just continually condemned us. But that's gone. And the Apostle tells us that is the sense that he had in mind in the second half of that 14th verse. The mindset of Romans 6 is so important. Do you remember in verse 3, and you should be able to turn your page, What in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, what is the first word? No. The chapter is based on you hearing the Gospel, believing it, and letting it settle your mindset as to how you should serve God. Know ye not. Verse 3, there's something that goes along with the profession of Christianity and baptism that you're supposed to remember. How about verse 6? Knowing this. How about verse 9? Knowing that. How about verse 16? Know ye not. These are things that you are supposed to understand. He's drawing a parallel from baptism, that you're to be dead to sin and alive to God. And he's about to draw a parallel with servitude, that you were a slave of sin, and now you ought to be a slave of God. A slave of righteousness instead of being a slave of sin. This is what the 14th verse is teaching us. In verse 11, we were told that we are to reckon ourselves. And see, verse 14, when it talks about sin not having dominion, it's based on your reckoning when you reckon properly about the grace of God and what God has done through Jesus Christ delivering us from the claims of the law, it's a reckoning of freedom. It's a reckoning of liberty. It's a reckoning of hope. It's a reckoning of salvation. And it's that reckoning that delivers us from sin's dominion. It's based on the doctrine that they received in the 17th verse, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Legal, vital, or final deliverance from sin is not the key here. If you try to make that the key, then what are you going to do with verse 15, which says you can still sin? So 14 can't be absolute, like legal is, or vital is, or the final phase of salvation. Do not let it rain. The word grace. I'm giving it the sense of the knowledge of grace, the understanding of the gospel of grace. Does it have that other in other places in the Bible? How about this one where it's abused as well? Galatians 5, 4. Ye are fallen from grace. Is it possible to fall from God's grace, Is it His electing grace, His justifying grace, His regenerating grace, His glorifying grace? No. We can't fall from that grace, but can we fall from the proper understanding of grace so that we end up adding the works of the law to the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what's right here. You're not under the law, but you're under grace. And if you understand grace correctly, sin can't have dominion over you. It's not going to have dominion over you because you've shaken free from the schoolmaster and now you have all the motivation, the liberty, the hope, the promises to live as under the Lord. Well, if this new dispensation is just all liberty, shall we sin then? The apostle asks in the 15th verse. If we don't have the binding, constraining schoolmaster Spanking us every day, or driving us every day, well then we just, we're just gonna end up in sin. So 15th verse asks the question, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. God will not tolerate any thinking along that line whatsoever. Why in the world would you, res- would you respond that way to the gospel of grace? Know ye not that's, that's wrong thinking. This is right thinking. That thinking doesn't have any knowledge. You're not making sense. Know ye not? And then he just, he goes in to his metaphor of servitude and slavery. And this is where we want to lay hold of it and ask ourselves this day, am I a slave to righteousness? Am I a servant of the Most High God? Am I thankful for the grace of God that has come to me with a message That God provided a second Adam. That He provided the Lamb of God that only had to be slain once for the redemption of sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, His servants ye are to whom ye obey. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Brethren, if sin still has dominion over you in the practical way of this 14th verse, meaning that you have no motive to live for the Lord, meaning that the story of Jesus Christ and what He's done for you and the record of that fact and the hope and the promises and the certain final victory, if that doesn't motivate you, what's wrong with you? You're the person in Second Peter one nine. Where we are told to make our calling and election sure. But in 2 Peter 1 9, the apostle wrote, if these things, these eight things, faith, virtue, knowledge, if these things aren't in you, then you're blind. And you can't see afar off. And you've forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Do you understand? You don't have the right mindset. You have forgotten. You can't see afar off as to what's coming. In that direction, you can't see afar off in the past that Christ died for you. You've forgotten that you were purged from your sins. We only show that the purgation of our sins or God cleansing us and forgiving us and redeeming us and adopting us, we only show that we understand that when we live an obedient life. And in that sense, sin doesn't have any dominion over us because it's broken. It's stranglehold that it had on us from the Old Testament is broken. It's now the gospel of grace that should motivate us by love. And that is why I say for the second time, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ constraineth us. That is what propelled Paul, the love of Christ. But now we have the question, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. This is describing their previous life as unsaved, unconverted, unregenerate children of the devil. How do we know that? Because of verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart. There was a huge change in their lives, and it took place between verses 16 and 17. Most men don't like being slaves. But we were all slaves willingly. We were by nature the children of wrath. And we were no different from the children of disobedience because we followed the same course they did. That is the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us that we were just like them. And we're by nature the children of wrath. We chose to be slaves. We were slaves to sin. The apostle here is reasoning this way. Know ye not. You're no longer under the law. You're under grace. You're under all the promises that come in the gospel. What are you going to do with your life? For you to even ask me the question, well, if we're under grace and the liberty of the gospel, can we just go ahead and live any way we want to? Don't you understand? Know ye not. That every day you make a choice of who you're going to yield yourself to. Are you going to yield these members that make up your body? Are you going to yield your mind and yield your spirit and yield your heart to sin? Then sin is your master and you're its slave. You're giving it dominion over you. You're letting it reign over you. And so you're a slave. You're a slave to sin and that's what you were. You were once a slave to sin because you chose sin at every point where sin could be chosen against righteousness. But there's another way to live. You can yield your members as servants to righteousness. Now if you yield yourself to obey sin, what is the end of that life? What is the great payday for yielding yourselves as servants of sin? Death. This is the chapter that ends with the verse that we many have memorized from childhood for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're heading toward that concluding verse for this chapter. Because that's what we're talking about. Wages. You choose. I want him to be my boss. I want sin and the devil to be my boss. And I'm going to yield myself to the devil and to sin. We may not say the words audibly. And we may not say the words consciously. But when we choose to sin against the Word of God, we are making sin our master, and we are choosing to obey sin, and the end payday of that course of life is death. Death in every respect. Even for a child of God, when they choose that course of life, it is a death to fellowship. James five nineteen and twenty first Timothy five, six. It is a death physically at times when God cuts off men like Ananias and Sapphira and many of the members of the Corinthian church. But that's not what's under consideration here. What's under consideration here is the course of this world. They make sin their master. They choose to yield to sin and obey it every day of their lives. And the end result is death. The other option we have is that we can yield ourselves obedient unto righteousness. Righteousness. And make righteousness our master, and we its slaves or servants, and we the slaves or servant of God. The huge difference that is made in the choice that we, we make every day. Who is your master? You know, slavery in the Bible is described in First Corinthians chapter seven that a man who is a slave of another man on earth, he can still be the Lord's freeman. And a man who is free on earth and is not a slave of another man, he's the Lord's servant. Because that's the relationship that counts the most. Are you free in the Lord by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And because of the grace that's been shown to you to make you free from sin and condemnation, do you want to be his slave for the rest of your life? Saul of Tarsus thought it was a worthwhile trade that what Jesus Christ had done for him, he would give the rest of his life. To try to pay him back. Because the love of Christ constrained him. That if one died for all, then we're all dead. And those that live should henceforth live and spend the rest of their lives to him that loved them and gave himself for them. All governments are popular. I said that on Wednesday evening. If a government isn't popular, it will throw its government off and establish a new government. We don't believe in that kind of revolution, but that's just a fact of human history. And you make a voluntary choice, and either sin is your master, or the Lord Jesus Christ is your master, and we make that choice every day. To be a bond slave of Almighty God is a wonderful position in life. The Apostle Paul wasn't ashamed to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be ashamed to be a servant. I'm a servant of the Most High God. I like the ring of that. Do you like the ring of that? Has Jesus Christ done enough for you to want to be a servant of the Most High God? Praise the Lord. That's the servitude we choose. Whoever you choose to yield yourself to, they are your master and you are their slave. And if you choose sin, when you come to the decision points of life, and we have many of them every day, in word, in thought, in deed, and you choose sin, you're saying, I want to be sin's slave. Your sins slave the enemy of the God of heaven. Instead, we should choose the God of heaven to be our master, and we are slaves of righteousness and holiness by obedience. Let's be slaves. We believe in slavery in this church. We believe in our slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ for Him having loved us and died for us, saving us from the slavery of sin. And the gospel comes and motivates us so that it, sin doesn't have the dominion, the controlling reigning force over us like it once did before we had hope. Here's the gospel in verse 17. But God be thanked! Amen. Verse 16 is, is saying, just in general, whoever you yield yourself to, you're their slave. If you yield yourself to sin, then you're a slave to sin. And the payday for that course of life is death. If you yield yourself to God in righteousness, the payday of that course of life, everlasting life. Verse 22 of this chapter. The end of that kind of slavery is everlasting life. I'll be that kind of a slave. Verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. You heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you were delivered... First of all, God chose you before the world began to save you from the plan of sin. Christ died on the cross to save you from its penalty. The Holy Spirit regenerated you to save you from its power. And when the gospel came, you believed it. God gets the thanks. Because God's operations came first before their obedience when they had the form of doctrine delivered to them. Paul always gets the order right because the truth should always be stated correctly. But God be thanked. If a person ever believes the gospel and that form of doctrine that the apostles delivered, if they believe that and change their lives to obey it, God is to be thanked. Does that bring back the verse that you've heard once or twice? But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Does it bring it back? But God be thanked. God made this difference. I've pointed out He made the difference in eternity. He made the difference at the cross. He made the difference in regeneration. Then we hear the gospel. Then we make the difference. God gives us those three things. He blesses us by His Spirit. He gives us all the motivation in the world. He works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And it is our duty to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And we make a choice. We have the power. We're saved from the plan. We're saved from the penalty. And we're saved from the power of sin. We don't have to let sin reign in our members. We can make a choice to yield ourselves slaves to God. Slaves to righteousness. It's When someone says to you, why aren't you going to do that? I can't do that. I'm a slave of righteousness. God won't let me do that. Isn't that what Joseph said to Mrs. Potiphar? How can I sin this great sin against God? Because I'm a slave of God. God says I can't touch you because you're another man's wife. How can I sin against God? It had nothing to do with Mr. Potiphar. Mr. Potiphar doesn't make adultery right or wrong. God makes adultery right or wrong by His Word. Right. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. You used to make a choice every day to enslave yourself to sin by obeying sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. From the heart. You have obeyed the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that form of doctrine that we apostles preached from the heart. Who changed their heart? God did. God did. God opened the heart of Lydia that she attended to the things spoken by Paul. See, that's why, that's how we study the Bible. We compare Scripture with Scripture. It took God changing Lydia's heart so that Lydia wanted to hear what Paul preached. And when Paul preached it, she believed it. Not only did she believe it, she wanted to be baptized in it. And then she wanted the whole host that was with Paul to stay at her house. Quick, 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 quick changes. She became the servant of righteousness. Because God had changed your heart. But God be thanked. But God be thanked. You know, it's a shame. Arminians don't understand this. Arminians, God's trying to save everyone. God's changed everyone's hearts equally. All they have to do is do something on their own. You know, a brother put it to us recently that in heaven, if the Arminian theology is true, in, Re- in Revelation chapter 5, When the host in heaven is singing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by His blood, Jesus is going to say, wait, wait, slow down, stop. Don't give me all the credit. I couldn't have done it without you guys. If their theology is true, they made the difference, not the Lord Jesus Christ. But when theology is presented by Paul and by the Holy Spirit, look what it states in verse 17. Verse 17. But God be thanked. Because the change in our heart that would ever say, I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore, but a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ, like Paul, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, that is by the grace of God. It is by grace in eternity called election. It is by grace at the cross called justification. It is by grace by the Spirit called regeneration. And then we hear the Gospel. And the Gospel, the form of doctrine, is either the saver... The aroma, the evidence of death unto death or life unto life. Right. The gospel, Paul said, we always triumph when we preach it. When we preach the true doctrine of this 17th verse, some don't believe it and it proves that they are dead. Some believe it and it proves that they're alive. Amen. It's the savour of death unto death. It's the savour of life unto life. Therefore, we don't corrupt the Word of God as many. We don't modify the Word of God to get some that are dead to look like they have life. We just preach the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what do men do with it? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. See, this is something the Roman saints had already done, and this is something that you've already done, but the reason it's being brought up here is to answer the questions That started in verse 1, and then we're in verse 15. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. When you heard the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from the heart you changed your lives and began to obey. Why would we go back from that? Or verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? God forbid. Whomever you yield yourselves to obey, you become their slaves. We don't want to do that to sin any longer. You once did that to sin. But when you heard the truth of the Gospel the first time, you changed. Keep changed. Stay changed. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Free from sin? Same as the word dominion. Are we free from sin in any absolute sense? No. Is He referring to the legal price paid in the cross here? No. Is He referring to the vital work of the Holy Spirit here? No. No. He's referring to our practical change of life. It's the same way Paul would say, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 is a practical description of salvation. Not legal or vital. It's practical. It's a choice that we make. I will no longer serve sin. And we do that because the Gospel motivates us to it after God chose us to salvation from the beginning. Jesus Christ died for us, and the Holy Spirit applies it in our hearts. Are you a slave of God today? Are you a slave of righteousness? Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. You chose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I sent you yesterday those two verses of mine from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where it says that when the Thessalonians heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, which hath delivered us from the wrath to come. And those things are proof and evidence of their election. Those things don't get them elected. Those things don't get them justified. Those things don't get them regenerated. They're the evidence of it. And this freedom from sin here is the freedom of the choice that we have made in the past, to be the slaves of sin. God chose us. Christ died for us. The Spirit changed us. The Gospel convicts us and we obey it. I am not going to live that way any longer. I am free from that Master. The glorious hope that I have in Jesus Christ and hearing what He's done for me. I am going to be His slave. I am a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am His servant from this day forward. So we bury ourselves in baptism to identify ourselves with Christ. I'm dead to my old man. I'm alive to God. Then, second metaphor of the chapter, I am no longer a servant of sin. I'm a servant of God in righteousness. And that is what I will obey. And what is the end of that life? It tells us in verse 22, same or similar words to this 18th verse. Look at verse 22. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, Ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. When we make God and righteousness our master, and we make ourselves their slaves, we have fruit, immediate fruit. That fruit is holiness. I started off this assembly from 2 Corinthians 7.1, that we are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Right. And we do it by making God and righteousness our master. I'm going to be its slave. Whatever God has said and whatever the word of righteousness tells me I ought to do, that's what I'm going to do. This is the result of chapters 1 through 5. We read what God has done for us and then we read what we should do for Him. And these Romans had already done it and you've already done it for the, the vast majority of you. You've believed the Gospel and been baptized. But now we need to live up to that profession by living dead to sin And alive to God, no longer serving sin, but a servant of righteousness. And it's a choice we make every day. The fruit is immediate. It's a holy life. The end is not so immediate. It's still in the future. And what is it? Everlasting life. Amen. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Our theology is so different. They sprinkle babies and call it salvation. They call a person down the aisle to make some decision for Jesus, and they call it salvation. Do you know what this text teaches us, what salvation truly is? Becoming a servant of righteousness. That is so far beyond some decision. It is a commitment of life that I will be a slave of God and his righteous standard revealed in the Bible. That's what we just covered. We can't live any other way or there's no evidence that we have an interest in the things God has done through Jesus Christ in chapters 1 through 5. Let us be bond slaves of the Most High. Amen.